It's Monday, January 14th, 2019. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 192 of the 5049 podcast. How you guys doing? You all right? Thanks for joining us for another conversation between myself and another musician. Today, that musician is composer and percussionist Sarah Hennies. Let's have a listen. Sarah Hennies is on the show today, and it's a good one. If you can't tell by my voice, I am, in fact, uh, a little under the weather right now. So please be forgiving of uh, 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 my, my unusual speaking voice right now. Because I am under the weather, I'm going to keep this a bit short up top. <clears throat> uh, I want to thank everyone who has signed up for the Patreon recently. And uh, if it's something that you've been considering doing, please do it. As many of you know, this podcast is in fact listener supported. You can be a supportive listener by going to patreon.com slash 5049 podcast. Uh, become a monthly donor for just a few bucks. Uh, you, can, you, can, you can do that. And as a reward to those who do, uh, you will have access to the entire archive of this podcast, which at this point is almost 100 episodes. Conversations with J.G. Thurwell, Mary Halverson, Ned Rothenberg, Fred Frith, um, Crispy, Chess Smith, uh, a lot of people. A lot of people. There's, you know, like I said, a hundred episodes in there. So if you sign up for the Patreon, you will immediately get access uh, and be able to download all those past episodes. If you're enjoying the show, please consider rating and reviewing it in iTunes. Go to iTunes, pull up the show, leave a rating and a review. Uh, that goes a long way and it really helps. All right, enough of that. Uh, today on the show, Sarah Hennies. What do you guys know about Sarah? Uh, she's originally from Louisville, Kentucky, born and raised. Uh, she studied at UCSD, spent uh, about a decade living in Austin, Texas, performing, and for the last uh, several years has been living in Ithaca, New York. As a percussionist, uh, a lot of her work <clears throat> is incredibly patient. There's a real physicality to, to, to a lot of it, uh, based more about static environments uh, than anything sort of big and boisterous. And as a composer, a lot of her work deals very closely with queer and, and trans identity. A lot of the music has a very sort of ethereal and, 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 you know, like I said, patient quality to it. In the last two years, she's become really prolific. Uh, she premiered a piece at Issue Project Room just about two years ago called Contra Alto, uh, which deals specifically with, with this idea of voice feminization that uh, occurs during um, the transition process. For today's conversation, I don't think we really got into any, any uh, topics around identity. Today's conversation is sort of like a classic one of just uh, kind of hitting some biographical notes and then talking some shit. Uh, Sarah's, Sarah's good at the talk. Today was a very enjoyable conversation. And uh, in the coming weeks and months, there's a lot of opportunities to catch Sarah live. Tonight, for instance, for those of you in Los Angeles, uh, she's presenting the piece Contra Alto. That's happening at the Monday evening concert series at uh, the Colburn School. It's at Zipper Hall. And then in the coming weeks, uh, uh, more, more opportunities to, to, to hear that piece. 
January 25th, she'll be in Cleveland at the Glow Gallery. February 1st, Tucson, Arizona at MOCA. February 3rd at MoMA PS1. Uh, a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff going on. Go to sarah-hennies.com. There you can get the tour dates. You can find out more about Sarah. And uh, I recommend you do. Today's a good one. And I, I think you guys are in for a treat. Go to sarah-hennies.com. And that's it. I hope you guys are all doing well. Here's my conversation with Sarah Hennies. in New York who, I mean, they've always done very well for themselves, uh, so they bought this crazy, you know, old historic house. Um, this was years ago already. But uh, it's, like, so old that in the basement, the original owners used the basement for slave quarters? Oh, my God. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> if you're at all... The kind so of they, they've upgraded. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's no more slaves living in their house. But, like, I don't know how people, like, live and sleep like, with that sort of vibe in yeah. the air. Yeah. This one, we found out our place used to be an orchard at some point. That's nice. It's very nice. That's and there's nice. actually, there's, like, four lone trees in a field behind the house that uh are like still producing fruit uh-huh. well, not right now obviously but right um, right 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 where you can kind of see like oh yeah this was an orchard <laughs> yeah i love i love old things i love worn in things mm-hmm. same but i'm also super like kind of like sensitive to vibes and i have a very active <laughs> imagination you don't want to live in a slave house <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't. so have you ever been to poland i just was there really in, in november where'd you go uh Wroclaw. okay yeah there's like yeah. a big uh, arts thing there yeah, uh, I it was just this guy Pavel invited me to play a show there, and um, I was supposed to be there for a day. And I, oh God, I felt so stupid about this too. But I've, I never do stuff like this. I'm like a solid traveler, uh-huh. and I left Oslo to go to the airport to go to Wroclaw, and um, I got there and I was like, man, this airport is like really empty right now, and I couldn't find the ticket booth for my flight. This was in Oslo. in in the Oslo airport, yeah. which is way outside of town and, and like kind of an expensive train ride from, yeah. from the city. And I finally I asked some guy at a service desk, and I was like, "Where's the Ryanair ticket booth?" He's like, "Let me see your ticket." And he's like, "You're at the wrong, wrong airport. airport." Oh, and I had because someone else booked the ticket for me. Yeah, and so I had no idea that Oslo had two airports, and I didn't look at the ticket because I was just like, "Oslo to Oslo." But so you missed your flight. It, yeah. It, <laughs> the, and then and the, other, the sad thing is that I had gotten to the airport like annoyingly early oh, because man. I was like, I'm so on top of my shit. I am like four hours early. Yeah, and bring then a good book. They saw my ticket and they were like, you're not going to make it. Like the other place is like 150 miles away or something, oh. like totally in the opposite direction of town. And oh. so um, I did get there, but not until the next morning. Like so, just in time for. I didn't get to do anything in Wroclaw except play a show. I mean, Wroclaw is a weird place. It just f- seemed weird. Well, it's but... like it's one of those places. My understanding of it uh, that you know, historically has like kind of been handed back and forth between Germany and Poland. So uh-huh. like when you're there, it kind of looks like Germany. Yeah. Uh, Poland's a weird place. 
it's I I was only there for barely a day. And, yeah, and I it I'm glad it's not just me. It felt a little odd. It's odd. But the guy who invited me was great. Really, yeah, nice guy and smart and cool. Does, yeah, yeah, does yeah. cool stuff. There was um. I mean, the reason I brought it up is if you go to outside of Krakow to the town of Oswiecim, which is where the Auschwitz camp is, mm-hmm. a lot of the houses in that town are made from the stone of the uh, crematoriums that were destroyed when the Allies came in. Oh, yeah. So you want to talk about like, sleeping <laughs> with a vibe? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'll do it. <laughs> Wait, I, are you, I thought you were from Texas or you lived in Texas. I lived in Austin for 10 years. Okay, were you right? Were you from Texas? No, I grew up in Kentucky, Louisville, Kentucky. Louisville. So I lived there until I graduated high school. Yeah. And then I went to college in Champaign Urbana. I went to grad school in San Diego, and then I moved to Texas for ten years. Yeah. And then almost exactly five years ago, moved to Ithaca. What? Um, why? Why Ithaca? My uh, ex, who I had been with forever, had gotten a job there. Okay. But I wanted to. Of all the places, I could have ended up because I was just kind of like, you know, I'll go wherever you want. Yeah, um, Ithaca was where I wanted to live the most because I didn't want to live in a big city. And one of my good friends, Tim Feeney, who I play music mm-hmm. with, taught percussion there for five years, and he told me that he really loved living there. He's and not there anymore. No, he left for a better job like right before I moved there. <laughs> but um, and he's in California now too. Okay, in San Diego, but, uh, L.A. Okay, but I um, after I really we didn't dislike austin when we left it was just really totally about my ex's work situation yeah. and but i was kind of like ready to go after 10 years when i started thinking about leaving it's like actually maybe i am tired of drinking all the time and like be, being in like party central 24 hours a it's day. hard not to it's hard to avoid that it's stuff. really it's impossible like well i always tell people that that like an organic tiny little grocery store food co-op opened in my bandmates neighborhood that sold that had lone star on tap and had like you know dollar beer Wednesdays and stuff, and it's like it's you every, just can't it's, avoid it. It's everywhere, and yeah. everyone does it, and it's really fun. And the the pace of life down there, I feel like, is slow enough to be conducive to oh totally drinking in the afternoon. So I I, I we we loved it, but um, also right around the same time, I was getting more more and more serious about like the kind of stuff that I do now musically. Right, and I thought it would be better for me to be closer to more places, which turned out to be very true (laughs) yeah yeah um i've never been to austin but is it is it like every seemingly every other city where everyone that's lived there for a little while is now complaining that it's done not exactly i mean it i lived there long enough that i earned the right to complain that it's really that it's really different now (laughs) that's a good way to put it but it i mean it is really different just since i left you you know yeah the house that I lived in for eight years in what was kind of a poor part of Austin, I sold for double what we bought it for eight years later. And then two years later, it was already worth a hundred thousand more than we sold it for. And now it's probably even more. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, so it's, I've just, I've been in Portland, Oregon a couple times in the last year or two, and I hadn't really spent much time there. And really what happened there is very similar to what's happening in Austin. It's yeah. like, it's the only large progressive city in an otherwise really conservative state right and it's really cool and it's really fun right so you know people just flock there and but i i really liked it but i just i was ready to do something else yeah and and i wanted to be able to play more often because in austin you really can't go anywhere except you know houston and yeah it just felt really limiting like musically to 
not be able to just get in the car and come to New York City. Right. And like, you know, play a show or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. Did you, what did you study in school? You went to San Diego or UC? Uh, I went to UI in Champaign-Urbana right. for, for undergrad. I studied percussion. Okay. And then I went, I did a master's at UC San Diego for two years, uh, also in percussion. Yeah, yeah, And that was in, I finished in 2003. Classical percussion? Uh, yeah. I mean, I went to UCSD because I knew that it was, um, everyone there was doing, you know, weird stuff. Right. <laughs> And the the school that I went to, I really I didn't know anything. I just wanted to not be at home anymore. And the guy who's three years older than me that took me to my first punk show when I was thirteen in Louisville. Yeah, he went to UIUC, and I saw Champaign Urbana on a list of like good music schools. So I was like, great, Don, I'll go there. Yeah. And I didn't realize that it was like a pretty like normal conservative large state school. You know, yeah. like. Most of the people in the music department that I knew, their like career aspirations was like middle school band director, right. which is you know no perfectly respectable no problem. Right. I personally can't imagine doing that, but <laughs> <laughs> but you know I I like they're really before I got to college I was already into experimental music and so really? yeah like starting around when I was fifteen or so I started listening to like you know henry cow and like underground like improv and noise stuff and um i mean we're about the same age and so that you're talking like 94 95 uh like 95 96 ish okay. i graduated high school in 97 yeah where were you finding that stuff in louisville um there was one really good record store yeah. and that had an experimental section so i would just buy stuff but when then... you saw the word experimental and then i'll well, not just anything, yeah. but but also I most of my friends when I was in high school were older than me, and they were like indie rock nerds. Yeah. And um, well, uh, my friend Joel in particular turned me on to the Trouser Press Guide of of music, which okay. is do you know this book? No. It's a like I think it's from the nineties. The the book it's this massive encyclopedia of records, and I just I read the whole thing and I like kind of folded the page down of anything that sounded cool. It was just like one paragraph descriptions of kind of like. It would be like a sort of album review length for one band's discography. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it, it's great. I still yeah. have the. I, actually, I just moved. It's not. I was like, oh, I still have these. But yeah. <laughs> that was like how I found out about like Henry Cow and the Residents and stuff like that. Like and, the the heavies. Yeah. Yeah. But then also, I switched high schools in tenth. No, sorry, eleventh grade to like a kind of performing arts magnet school. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I didn't know anything about the so-called classical tradition you were playing trap kit uh i've been playing drum set since i was nine so yeah. i was like my my like life aspiration prior to um halfway through high school was to be like a rock drummer yeah um and i mean i still do that not all the time but like it, it comes up fairly regularly yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but um when i switched to this other school i met these two guys who were already doing you know like uh capital s capital p serious percussion and yeah. I didn't know that that was even a thing. And then, like, the way that, that I discovered John Cage is because these guys were playing these Elliot Carter timpani solos, and I wanted to learn them. And the only recording I could find of them was this compilation of American composers whose names that start with C. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, it had a John Cage piece and, and some George Crumb pieces. And I was like, oh, this is, like, what is this? I mean, and set, then, it starts, that sets the initial standard pretty high. Yeah, yeah. There's a, you can go pretty far down from there. So that I, and you know, I mean, I was like this, I've always been like this, that like, as soon as I was like, you're telling me there's this entire world of people doing really weird stuff from like 50 years ago. Yeah. 
and it's still happening and I don't know about any of it, you know? And so I just started like, you know, like the first time I heard Zanakis was because I was in the record store and I saw that he had a weird last name and that it was a CD of percussion music. And I was like, great, I'll buy that. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there goes the neighborhood. Um, so I, yeah, I was just like, I was just buying like not anything, but anything that like looked interesting to but me. Were, were you, do you feel like at the time you had an awareness that, even with that music, Zanakis, Carter Cage, that there was some kind of hierarchy where it was composer, performer, and not like one thing. Oh yeah, I mean, I under, I I understood, you know, sort of the structure of like yeah. classical music, and that it was like composers writing. I mean, the way that I found this stuff was because I was learning an Elliot Carter timpani piece, so I was kind of like, I had become aware of like solo percussion as a as right. like a thing, right. Um, that exists and so i don't i don't really know i just kind of picked it up do you have any memory of um in encountering this music like the first or maybe first couple times that you heard different versions performances of the same piece and was able to go like oh that guy's doing it wrong or um the first one that comes to mind which is fairly recent because it wasn't until i played the piece that i realized that it was a terrible recording (laughs) is um feldman's crippled symmetry oh yeah that the CD that I had owned of that for years and I had never really looked at the score too carefully. And then, um, once I played it and heard uh, also the original, the, the frozen reads like original premiere recording of like the people that it was written for. Uh And I realized that the percussionist on this one that I had was just like, just awful. Like, like he didn't play it wrong in terms of the notes, but it's just, you know, like the choice of mallets and like the quality of the sounds were just like so wrong. Yeah. But, but that was just like like less than six years ago that, okay. that I was like, oh, this is a terrible recording. Because, <laughs> um, you know, I didn't think too hard about it. Yeah. Um, but no, I don't know about being younger. I don't know if I, if that. Were you, were you encountering um, any living composers that you were, that, that you were able to talk to or see or. Yeah. Uh, a percussionist, one of the percussionists that I mentioned and I, drove down to Nashville in November 96 for the um, PASIC percussion convention. Uh-huh. And the, historically, the first day of PASIC is always a day of, they call it New Music Day, and it's a day of just concerts. There's no like panels or anything. Right. And um, I saw two pieces by Stuart Saunders-Smith, and he was there, and it, it was really funny. I still love telling people about this, that like, you know, I already had some awareness of, of experimental music and was pretty, you know, I was already looking for stuff like this and it's like, you know, you can imagine what a day of percussion music is like. And then here comes this, like this, like kind of old Quaker with a giant craggly beard. And he's like, my piece, uh, replicates the rattling of bones at, uh, Treblinka's death camps. (laughs) And you, you know, they play these two pieces and, and they're like, any questions? Because you know they would play, and then the composer yeah. would answer, would answer, would take questions, and it was just stunned silence. Yeah. <laughs> and Stuart, who I came to know him later, and I played a lot of his music in college. Um, he, you know, it was just dead silent. This massive convention center, and then he was like, "Well, I'm a Quaker, and Quakers are very comfortable with silence, so I'm perfectly happy to just sit here until my time is up." <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I think a couple people asked him like you know whatever questions but um it was just very funny to see like you know this like really intense thing on a day of otherwise kind of like 
you know, not all boring music, but definitely not like um, music of that level of like conceptual intensity. Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And... Or even because they did two pieces. The other one was not like a, you know, like about Nazis. It was just like a piece for three vibraphones that was really beautiful, but sure. like just on another planet from the rest of the stuff I heard that day. Yeah. I mean, you know, the first thing I think of when I hear about a day of percussion music is that it could be really exhausting. Yeah. It, I mean, as, as a listener. I mean, now in, in hindsight, compared to like what I could have seen, mm-hmm. I can, you know, I can remember like almost everything that I saw. It was actually like pretty good. Yeah. Compared to like what it could have been. Because right. <laughs> I don't know how much percussion music you've heard, but it's like, you know, it's not like a... A, a bottomless well of, I mean, of like quality <laughs> that's, that's music like, I, I was just having yeah. this conversation with someone the other day that like I remember as, as a kid I hated music because what I heard you know it was like George Michael and mm-hmm. Motley Crue was the stuff that was around when I was a kid and I was like I don't like this this really sucks you know, that was the music I liked when I was a kid <laughs> <laughs> well you know when I was like 10 sure yeah 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 yeah, yeah. um but yeah, so did you? So you you talked to you talked to him after the performance. Uh, I wrote him a, a letter. I I did my junior recital during my sophomore year because I went to England for junior year. Oh really? And I played uh, like a study abroad thing. Yeah. And I played two of Stewart's pieces, including the the uh, Treblinka piece. And uh, I sent him a tape, and I I wrote him at his publisher's address, which is his wife. Okay. And um, developed a relationship with him for a while. Yeah. And, um, he has, I don't know if he still does this, that he lives in, he lived in Baltimore like his entire career almost and they retired in Vermont several years ago and I've kind of lost touch with him cause he's not on the internet mm-hmm. and, um, we lost each other's phone numbers for a while, but, mm-hmm. um, uh, I forgot what I was saying. But uh, the, the Treblinka <laughs> piece was that, had, I, I feel like, you know, a lot of the music that you do and especially like in the last year or two has like pretty intense personal subject matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and clearly this Treblinka piece did as well. <laughs> was that like a, a, a pretty early encounter with people working with that kind of... I He definitely was the first composer that I saw that was really intense about what they were doing. Yeah. And I think that kind of endeared me to him. Um, and I liked that he seemed like kind of an outsider. You, you know, he didn't look like or act like the kind of thing you expect composers to be like when Mm. you're 17 and um, really nice open person. Not that other composers aren't nice and open, but um, you know, I just wrote this guy a letter out of the blue and he didn't have to do anything for me. And then I I ended up like, you know, he had this summer composition course where he would take one student for a week into his house and you just live with him and like talk about music for a week. And like I did that in, right before my last year of college of undergrad mm-hmm. and um yeah just like a he, i just really like like he was the first composer composer that i was like really passionate about i think mm-hmm. on on like a more personal level mm-hmm. um but you, you know i i couldn't go see john cage or zanakis talk so like, yeah you uh, missed them yeah it's a little some partially circumstantial but partially i think like what Stuart was doing at that time was also the kind of thing that I was going to be really into. Cause I don't know. I think I, it, like the music I liked in high school was mostly like 
really really crazy or weird like san diego or dc like post-hardcore music and uh you know i was already into really weird rock bands and Mm -hmm. so this was just like another level of of like difficulty is the wrong word but another level of like being challenging and interesting sure yeah but i also think it's also kind of like in my experience you know having started i think a lot of people our age (coughs) you know start with some sort of rock music and then they find more interesting rock music and then yeah. they go into like maybe Frank Zappa or something and then there's like the deep drop where <laughs> yeah. like to me it's like a matter of just like discarding the stuff that wasn't important to it anyway and then building it back up right you know which for me like I don't know if you noticed when you walked in but I was listening to Chet Baker mm-hmm. which I listened to almost every single day right and even when I was like 25 like being like super into experimental music and free jazz I had no interest in that shit it's like it's like for me it's this up and down thing where yeah, and I think part of it, I, I was just thinking about this this morning for, I don't remember why, but that I used to really like listen to just tons and tons of experimental music and, and I don't like it any less now, but it feel I this wasn't like a conscious thing, but I feel like the closer I got to making like the music that I wanted to make, the less interested I became in like, what's this? What's that? Yeah. You, you know, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I'm still really interested in what everybody's doing, but you know, most of the music I listen to is like current singer songwriters. Oh, really? Yeah. Like who? <laughs> like um, the anyone who knows me is gonna like roll their eyes just because they're so sick of hearing me talk about this this guy. But his name's Daniel Romano. He's uh, a Ontario singer songwriter. Okay. Total genius. He's made like twelve albums in eight years or something. Oh my god. And, like, it, he's incredible. Um, like based around guitar and voice kind of thing. Yeah, mostly. He yeah. he he was in um, an indie rock band a while back that I had never heard of until I heard his solo stuff that I think was really big in Canada. Okay. And and for a while he was doing this kind of like Graham Parsons nudie suit country thing, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. But since then he's turned into more of a sort of Dylan type, like every album he's on to something else. Sure. And he, you can tell he's kind of playing around with people and really intense but also like a little bit guarded and funny and you, you know it's not it's not this like uh naked sincerity uh the way that some you know you know like Elliot Smith or something yeah um it's he doesn't sound like Bob Dylan but it's it's like that kind of thing where it's just it feels like this guy can like do anything he wants yeah and, and uh it's really it's really like cool to have been aware of him since his first solo album which by accident because uh-huh. he made an album with julie dwyer and who i really like and uh i was it was an album called daniel fred and julie and i was like well who are daniel and fred and that was that was how i found out about him <laughs> so it worked the way they named their album <laughs> yeah i'm I, but yeah i'm totally totally obsessed with this guy yeah um but also it's just you know the way that i listen to music is more casual like mm-hmm. when I lived in Austin, I had for years, I had this data entry job where I would just go to work, put in headphones and listen to like, you know, Sachiko M records all day. Yeah. <laughs> and part of it is circumstances because the jobs that I had in Ithaca, I couldn't do that. Um, but I really think it's more, it's just, I, I, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm like looking for something in the way that I was 10 years ago. Sure. Um, and that so makes sense. my, my like, my appetite is not a, quite as um, intense. <laughs> but are, are there are there certain pieces or performers or composers that you continue to check in with from that initial period of, of excitement? Oh yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of people that like I'll buy anything they do. Like <laughs> I ju- the, I just got this Lionel Marketty six CD box set because yeah. it's just like, well, 
he's he's my guy like, uh-huh. totally totally <laughs> he made a six cd set of course i'll get that yeah. like so but it's more like kind of fun record buying than it is like um i don't know it's the same thing i'm I, i'm not like listening in a way to like look to search for something I the second that. i heard about this this <laughs> ellie elian radik box set i i ordered it this is i got this in the mail like six weeks ago yeah i've listened to one of the discs yeah i mean it's really good yeah, what i've heard of it like anyway, she's the but, yeah. you know she's like the goddess of of ethereal sounds um yeah so then so then you went to uh uh ucsd yeah for two years yeah and who did you study with there uh steve schick oh of course yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. i mean that's why i went there that was because of steve uh because of steve but also Equally, because I wanted to be somewhere where everybody was playing new music. What year? What year was this? Oh one to oh three. So Mark Dresser wasn't quite there yet. He came right after I left. Okay. Like I remember his. I didn't see it, but his job talk was like while I was leaving. Oh wow. <laughs> or I was like getting ready to move yeah. away, and it was like, oh, Mark Dresser's coming. Like, Charles oh. Curtis would have been there. Yep. Uh, Charles' first year was my first year. Okay. Yeah. And did you get to study with him or work with him? A little bit, yeah. I we had a well, he had a little trio that played, um, like um, medieval uh, string pieces, and then also these like improvised, um, just intonated drone pieces. And I am not entirely sure how I ended up playing harmonium with him and this guy Chris Williams. <laughs> uh-huh. But I was in a little this weird little trio with Charles for a little while and. He tried to get me to go to South by Southwest with him and Chris, and and I couldn't do it for to some perform. Time. Yeah, to do this trio because yeah. Charles was playing some showcase, and uh, I mean, I couldn't go. It was you know I was in right. school and it was really far away. But right, right, um, right. But we we I wasn't like super close with him, but you, you know we, I like him. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've I've met him once, and the only recordings I had. Well, that's not true. Let me take that back. I have I have several recordings that he's on, mm-hmm. and. He, I'm so fascinated by him, mm-hmm. and I'm, probably because there isn't he isn't like this explosive figure where if you just search his name, there's like a million things in places. To yeah, know. yeah. But like when you hear him play patterns in a chromatic field, yeah, it's no one plays it better. No. And if you hear him play, you know, Alvin Lucier pieces or you know Eliaridi pieces, it's like, or you listen to him play Bach cello suites, like, yeah, man, he's the guy. And yeah, it's interesting when you hear not necessarily patterns in a chromatic field, but when you hear someone. Playing Alvin Lucier's music does not seem difficult until you hear someone who's really good at it. Right. And then you realize that there's all of these, I I wouldn't describe it as like lots of elements, but that like, it's easy to do it okay. Right. But then when you hear someone really, really good at it, it's like, yeah. 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 It'll blow your hair back. Yeah. Yeah. I was talking with Oren Mbarchi about that. He was here last year. He and Steve O'Malley had, um, just performed this piece the night before of mm-hmm. of Alvin's, oh, cool. um, and and Oren described it as you know a different, completely different kind of difficult, yeah, <laughs> playing, yeah, and it it doesn't seem difficult until you do it, and then you start to realize. I mean, this is true of of there's a, a vibraphone duo of mine that's been getting played by a lot of students that yeah. in my mind is an incredibly simple piece that like I didn't have to make a lot of decisions about, but then once I started coaching other people, I realized that like. I was making all these decisions that I just don't have to think about them because sure. because I wrote and recorded the thing myself and then I just played that piece live for the first time last month. Like I had only recorded it and it's a duo that I recorded both parts of for an album. Yeah. And uh but 
listening to other people play it, I, I realized it was, I was kind of selling myself short by referring to it. You know, I'd be like, oh, my music isn't hard, you know, or something right. like that, which is like partially like just kind of funny, but more kind of like a tick of, 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 um, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah. But that's, I mean, that's something I've been thinking about a lot. And it's an interesting aspect of, of compositional thinking is if you're writing music for people, how, like how much do you feel like they need to have an awareness of what you're, uh, you know, to, what you're, like outside of the, the the musical concepts, you know, how much do they need to know about the more abstract uh, concepts that you have that might be about, you know, a dedication to someone? Um, or... Not a lot. I think of, of the abstract stuff. I'm thinking more of sort of mechanical things mm-hmm. like, you know, like the guy using the wrong mallets and crippled symmetry um, that one of the things and this is my fault because I put. In the score for this piece, it's called Settle. I put like a range of tempos and I realized that everyone was picking the faster tempo. And I only put it a range of tempos there because I, in a larger space, I would play this piece slower. Mm-hmm. And everyone, every time was playing it way too fast. And so it's like, now if I were to go back and change the score, I would totally, I would just take it out and, and just not allow people to play it that fast. Mm-hmm. Um, or not instruct people that they are allowed to play it that fast. Um, How long is the piece? Like twelve minutes long. Twelve minutes. It's, it's not long, but right. it's one one player plays one s- single pulsing four note chord that just slowly gets quieter over the over twelve minutes, and then the other person has this more sort of intermittent part. When you write a piece like that, are you, like how conscientious do you think you are of having you know a, a, a slow paced piece? physically what that does to the player like how throughout the course of the piece their their what their physical um um disposition is mm-hmm. how, how that affects the the performance of the composition when i first started making pieces like that i wasn't thinking about it at all and then yeah, yeah at least before i was in ethica like five six seven years ago I was playing this snare drum piece a lot that was a single continuous 23 minute drum roll mm. with like some sine waves that slowly fade in. And um, I liked it, you know, I knew I had an awareness that it was a difficult thing to play a drum roll for 23 minutes, but it wasn't like, um, I didn't like set out to, to do something that would make people go like, when is this going to stop? And then someone yeah. said to me after a performance once that it's this really like drony kind of zone out piece but until you start to realize that there's a human up there probably hurting themselves and i and it wasn't until i don't remember it was a friend of mine i don't remember who now but i hadn't thought about that piece that way i just thought about it as like well i want this sound to continue for a long time so i'm gonna just play it mm-hmm. um and i th- and, and i think it, you know i liked the sort of that it's physically demanding because then it made me feel like i was really like doing something with some some like gravity or weight to it but i wasn't thinking about you know if at that time if i had made a score for someone else to play that piece i wouldn't have really thought much about like um that side of it of that that now when i play things like this i realize there's a certain body language or like positioning or type of movement that i can do that will sort of accentuate or not accentuate certain things that like you know like one of the things i would tell people is that you don't want to i don't want to show that it's really hard mm-hmm. it's not my goal isn't to be like oh, oh i'm working so hard up here you know mm-hmm. so that people will 
it's like too obvious or something. Mm-hmm. But if you just sit there like a statue and just move your hands for 23 minutes, to me, that feels more provocative of the, geez, this person must be in pain mm-hmm. than just being like, I'm in pain. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So it doesn't feel like, um, it's not, it's not like uh, something I'm like trying to spell out exactly. It's more sort of a, a like collateral damage of the thing that I wanted to happen. Sure. <laughs> but, I mean, long static pieces are tricky. Like, yeah. As I've done, um, the more stuff I do, the kind of the longer <laughs> the pieces get. And I did this piece last year. Uh, we did a couple performances, and the first performance was the best. It got kind of like not as good as it went along. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was one, a piece for four clarinets and two drummers, an hour long. Mm-hmm. One piece, continuous piece, an hour long of drones. And, mm-hmm. and by the last, it, it felt too short by the end. Yep. Everyone was like, oh, <laughs> is there another piece? I was like, we just played for fifty-four minutes yeah. without taking the horns out of our mouth. Yeah, it's. I mean, I'm, I'm, I really like long pieces for that reason. Is it's like, you know, you can watch a movie for two hours and it doesn't feel long. So it, right. I mean, unless the movie's terrible, but like, right. It's. I don't know. I'm interested in this sort of like, the way it feels like time is passing or not passing or slower or faster or whatever. There's, this. I'm sure I, I still don't know how to say his name properly, but there's this French composer, Jean-Claude Eloy, E-L-O-Y, okay. that I was on a plane once and he he has all these CD sets that are, it's like one piece for four CDs or something. And my favorite piece of his called Yo In is a, it's a percussion solo with with electronics. And um, I was listening to the, I, w- I was on an airplane. And I was like, I'm going to listen to all of this finally in one <laughs> sitting. And I kind of, you know, I was on an airplane and it was nighttime and I wasn't paying attention. I was I wasn't watching anything else. Like I wasn't playing a game or anything. Yeah. And I was just sitting there. And at, at one point in this piece, you know, all this like hammering and like buzz sawing and like really really loud stuff starts happening, which never happens earlier in the piece. And I was like, oh, this thing's really getting going now. And I looked at the timer and I've been listening to it for two hours. That two hours passed before I was like, ah, here we go. Right, and, and I don't mean yeah, that. No, it, I don't mean like that. It's bad, but I was like, yeah. ah, the piece is gonna, the piece is really gonna like go where it's going now. And I'd already been like totally fixated for two hours. Yeah. I, and I was really in, and I think about that a lot as because I, you know, I'm trying to like make longer pieces now. Like conscientiously trying to make longer pieces. I I want to, but also what's like, spurring that? I like long pieces. I right. like the thing I just told you about. Right. But, also, it just feels like the often the material I want to work with, it doesn't feel like you can like get enough of it in like fifteen minutes or something. Yeah, um, that it's that you know it needs time to you need to like live with it for a little while. Yeah, um, it's 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 something I've been thinking about a lot, and it's it's fascinating to me because it sort of alters how you present things. Like I made, uh, I have this trio, we made two records and it just turned out this way that both records are short, mm-hmm. like 34 minutes long, but each record, the first piece is 20 minutes long and the second piece is like 14 minutes long mm-hmm. and it's really slow moving. But by the time you're done listening to the thing, like you only spent 34 minutes listening to music, Yeah. but it was a real patient listening session. Mm-hmm. Um, and my favorite filmmaker, uh, Robert Bresson is like that. Like, have you seen the movie Mouchette? Uh, no. Unbelievable, Un- I, I I was so moved by it the first time I saw it. Like it was one of the things where I watched it immediately again. Right, uh, and it's slow moving, and it's like 
got like a quiet brutality to it. Mm-hmm. Like emotionally, there's a lot of stuff in the film where you're yeah. just being like punched in the heart, but it's quiet and it's slow. And the film is only an hour and 13 minutes long. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, I, I will see that. <laughs> I, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. Yeah. So you were in San Diego for three years? Two years. Two years. I was, in the context of like people who go to school there, I was like a blip on the radar. I was like sure. barely there. You, but, you knew that that wasn't where you wanted to stay? Well, it was, I had a, the person I moved to Ithaca with, we, we had kind of an, a deal that we, she wanted to get her master's degree somewhere else. And I, you know, I went first basically. Right. But I actually, I think if I had been single, I don't think I would have stayed because by the end of two years, really by the end of six years of music school, I was totally checked out. Like, actually, I remember when Charles and Alec played Patterns in a Chromatic Field for Mm -hmm. the first time and I didn't go because I just was like, I just didn't care. And like John Oswald was on campus. I didn't go. I know. And I didn't go because I just was like, you were, I just was done. I didn't want to play. I just didn't want to play experimental music for a while. And I I never liked school ever. Like, but you still did a master's degree. Yeah. Cause I thought that it would be different from undergrad, which it was, but still by the end of it, I was sick of having to do stuff that, I didn't want to do and, you know, play student pieces that I had no interest in. And mm-hmm. and especially percussionists and cellists at that school tend to get really overworked because, you know, there's like 50 composers and 12 performers and six of them are percussionists and everyone writes for percussion and cello. You know, almost all composers like those instruments for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And so it, I just wanted to do whatever I wanted to do. And I had I had been in school nonstop from the age of five to 23 and I just didn't I mean that was 15 years ago and I still don't want to go back to school (laughs) (laughs) Um, but when you when you um, think about that sense of 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 being tired of that have have you has that sense of tiredness gone away yeah of course I mean I the most of when I moved to Austin I was like I'm gonna start a band and that's what I'm gonna do I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm going to do my dream. I'm going to be the, you know, I'm going to be in a band and like a rock band. Well, kind of, but <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 me and a guitarist named Aaron Russell. And then I, did you, you had Sandy Ewan on, on, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Sandy, Sandy and Aaron and I started a band called the weird weeds in 2003. And, um, Aaron and I hit it off right away. It was the, the two of us were already playing when we met Sandy. And then we were like, Oh, this, this should be a band. And we, put out five albums in 10 years and amazing we didn't tour as much as like you know quote unquote real rock bands tour but we toured as much as we could mm-hmm. with everyone's jobs and you know not making any money on tour <laughs> yeah but so that um, band was it like a radical departure of what you just <clears throat> had just left behind in san diego or was yeah it- <clears throat> yeah it was like i mean you know i'd been playing Zanakis and and like dense percussion music like like american and european avant-garde music and I um I I can't really remember exactly what my like frame of mind was but I definitely was like I moved to Austin because my partner at the time was going to school there but I knew that it was a big like rock music town and um I lucked into meeting this guitar player that I had a connection with for a long time I mean mm-hmm. we're still friends obviously sure. but um that m- musically we were really really different but it was one of those partnerships that like it just felt really good. I felt like we like understood each other and the fact that we didn't make the same kinds of music made and the band. Were you writing or was it improvised? Uh, it was written music. It was, yeah. 
the kind of blueprint for our songs would be this not all of them but most of them would be some kind of like strictly composed weird chord progression and not even dissonant music it, you know it was kind of like often like pleasant sounding music but the songs behaved in weird ways and mm. ended sooner than they should and it um like do you, you uh do you ever hear the curtains or um is that a band yeah it, uh chris cohen who was in deer for a long time okay. the, the curtains was his thing and um someone a reviewer in san francisco said that uh us and the curtains were part of the same as yet to be named genre (laughs) (laughs) of like bands that play weird short songs uh that are like just kind of like quirky and odd but not abrasive Mm -hmm. um and then over the course of 10 years music slowly when we started we had it wasn't like a manifesto exactly but i was really invested in being a rock drummer that like never plays drums like a rock drummer and um so what would that look like like um you know using a lot of sounds from improvised music and like never playing a straight beat mm-hmm. um, for a long time my kit in that band was two drums and a hi-hat and that was it what two <laughs> like two tom drums oh or? like a snare drum and a bass drum yeah and um over 10 years the music got more and more repetitive and uh more and more expansive and that by if you heard the first album and the last album, it wouldn't sound like the same band. But if you listen to them in order, you can hear sure. it kind of like moving from one place to the next. Um, so the last album that we made is is uh, eight or nine instrumental songs that most of them only have one part that just repeats. Yeah. Um, and I, I love it. It's great. But by the end of the <laughs> band, it resembled more of like what I'm doing now than it did at the beginning. And that was a natural progression on everyone's behalf, or was that you sort of no everyone? It, that way? it was one of those things we just never talked about it. We yeah. never consciously like guided the band in any aesthetic or stylistic way or musical way. It was just like you know, our fourth album had a bunch of instrumental songs on it, and I had had this idea like maybe we should make an all instrumental album because all of our new songs hadn't had singing yet. And we had written like half an album. Mm-hmm. And then Aaron came to band practice one day and was like, yeah, I was thinking we should do an all instrumental album. And it's like, well, here we are. <laughs> the, 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 this album is, is done. <laughs> yeah. But so when you were in Austin, so you had this band going, did you also have a community of, of collaborators and improvisers? Yeah, and- totally. There was, um, uh, Chris Cogburn, the percussionist yeah. improviser was one, actually the first person I met in Austin. And, um, I mean, I had been playing some kind of weird improvised music since I was a teenager Mm -hmm. and um, periodically would get sort of disinterested in improvising and then I would hear or see another thing and be like, oh, this is exciting. Now there's something else to do. And that, actually right after I got to San Diego, I saw Nimperine with Axel Dorner and Andrea Neumann. Oh, God. Yeah, and I was like, wow, this is like, this is great. Yeah. And so when I got to Austin, Chris and I started playing together and doing, you know, that sort of like style of quiet, scratchy, textural, timbral improv. And it was like me, Chris, Kurt Newman, Sandy Ewan. Um, There were like, I'm struggling to remember everyone, but there there were quite a few people interested in improvised music and also just experimental music in general when I got to Austin. And so really the whole... It feels like what I was doing that whole time was the band, but actually I was playing experimental music like all the time. Yeah. Um, it just, in my head, it wasn't what I was like 
focused on. Like uh-huh. I, I wasn't trying to like make it as an improviser. <laughs> sure. But I, for several years, like desperately wanted the band to, to like be more popular. But, you know, in hindsight realized that we did, you know, none of the things that a band that needs to, to do become to become popular. <laughs> it, yeah. Like popular in any capacity? Popular it, with the weirdos, popular it, with the mainstream? No, because we were too weird for, for mainstream music sure. and we were too rock-oriented for experimental music people. And, you know, not to say that people didn't like us, but it was just totally unmarketable. And and, yeah. and not that I ever talk about things in the sense of marketing, but if you're going to talk about, like, being in a successful rock band, that's like, you know, you got to do things that people like. And uh, yeah, not, that's the name of the game. And not things that are like impossible to categorize. And after ten years, they're like, "What's your band sound like?" You still go, "Well, I don't, I don't really know." <laughs> you know, so. I, I, it's an that's an important thing to bear in mind when people, when musicians are kind of like battling their own bitterness about you know their marginality, which is like, yeah, I, I was very bitter. For a time, really? and then and then I was like, you know what? I don't care about this anymore. And that I I realized that anything good that had ever happened to me or us was because someone found us or approached me or us, and it was not because I was like pushing our music onto someone. And so I was like, this is making me crazy and angry all the time. So I'm just not going to do it. And what pu- like you felt like you were pushing stuff and trying just- to like promote, you know, yeah. and like. With that band specifically or with... With the band. Yeah. Because, I, I mean, I didn't think that... You know, I never would have thought at that time that I would end up being like a professional composer. Partially because it didn't it didn't even occur to me that that would ever be possible. And, part, you know, it just wasn't what I was thinking right. about at the time. That, like, I would one day make my living doing the kind of stuff that I'm doing right now. Right. So, um, but, you know, that was 10 years ago, so... Right. Things right. change. Yeah, but I mean, you know, sometimes you're in a room and the lights are off and not only do you not know that there's a switch in the room, but you certainly have no idea where it is. Yeah, exactly. I just, I don't know. I mean, this is still true. I've just kind of, in any given point in my life, I'm just kind of like doing whatever it is that I want to do, mm-hmm. um, which I, I think was why, I, <clears throat> excuse me, I had lost interest in UCSD by the end because I was just like, I want to be in a band. Yeah. And... um also, I was just tired, and I, I was terrible at school when I was a kid, really? especially as a teenager. And I like just, bad grades, or uh, I, I was uh, savvy enough to um, do as little work as possible and still get like okay grades. Yeah, <laughs> so I wasn't like failing classes, but um, yeah, I, I really, really was like a pretty like very unhappy seventeen-year-old. Yeah. Um. So I and. and it, I just don't like school. I just don't like it. Yeah, I know. I hate school. <laughs> yeah. Always hated it. I, I Which is not to say I didn't have a really, really... I was really into what I was doing. I loved when I was 20. I really loved being in music school and being able to play all the time. But I hated every other part of school. You, you know, yeah. like my last semester of senior year, I had a geography required geography class that I never bought the textbook for. And like barely went to the class and somehow, I don't know how I passed that class, but you know, I, that's my level of interest in like, uh, traditional education. (laughs) I still have this, I mean, I I think this is probably pretty common, but I, this nightmare still comes to me at least once or twice a week where it's, I'm in 12th grade, it's the end of the school year. And I realized that, that, um, 
I haven't attended seventh period. But I have like this exact three times all semester, and I hope I'm going to pass. Although there's no reasonable, uh, you know, and like if I don't pass, it's the end of twelfth grade. Like I'm not. <laughs> my, my dream, th- I still get this dream, is that I have been in school all semester, and it's the end of the semester, and I forgot that I was registered for a class, and yeah. it's like finals, and I'm like, oh my god, yeah, I, like I'm failing this class because I never went, yeah, and it's, I I don't know, I don't know what what that is exactly. Part but... of the dream for me is. I feel confused because like, fuck, I only did go to three classes all semester, um, but they never reached out to me. The teacher never got in touch with me to say, uh-huh. hey, you need to pull your shit together. <laughs> so I was like, they're kind of to blame too, right? Right. Um, Everyone has those kinds of dreams, I think. Yeah, I think so. Um, that's not my most frequent like uh, recurring dream, but really? it's, it's in the, it's in, it's in the, the repertoire. What, what are some <laughs> recurring dreams? Uh for a while it was like I'm being pursued for some sort of crime that I didn't commit. Mm-hmm. And then actually just in the last couple of weeks, I realized that that has shifted to um, me trying to get somewhere and I can't get there. You know, like I had one where like I, physically, I was like, you... I was like in the Austin airport in a, this was just like a few nights ago. At the Oslo airport. <laughs> I was in the Austin airport and like every time I would go down an escalator, it would be some new like uh ring of, of the, of the, uh, uh, of the airport and I, right. you know, I'm like rushing to some flight and I'm like, I'm not going to make it. And then at one point in the dream, I like looked down and my bag was gone and it's just like stress dreams. Yeah. Uh, some version of like, um, not, uh, being comfortable. Yeah. That's what dreams are for. <laughs> yeah. Did, um, so did the end of that band, uh, was that because you left Austin or a little of both? It was, I actually, the night that I came over, to tell Aaron that I was moving away <clears throat> before I could tell him that I was moving away. He was like, I've been thinking that maybe it's time to stop because, um, our half five years into the band, we picked up a, a really amazing bass player named Lindsay Verrill. And she was always gone on tour with like more, more popular bands. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and Sandy was living in Houston. And so it was like every single show that we were getting asked to do, which was like kind of frequently, we were 90% of the time saying no because we couldn't do it. And I'm assuming that Aaron felt the same way that after a while it was like, we would have band practice and be like, what are we practicing for? Like we're not recording. We're barely playing shows. And it, when Aaron told me that he thought I would, we both agreed that we didn't think that we could make a better album than the last one that we made, Mm -hmm. which, um, there's this Australian indie pop band that I really like, the Luxmiths. I always really respected them. They were together for 15 years. And in their like farewell breakup letter, they were like, we're not breaking up for any bad reason. We just feel like um, we don't want to um, have our fans remember that we made, that there was like one record they wish we hadn't made. Yeah, <laughs> And it's like, I really like respected that level of self-awareness to, yeah. to be like, yeah, this is, this is as good as we can do. Yeah. And, yeah, and I really, I mean, I like all of our records, but in particular, I really love that last one. It's like really elegant and just, um, it's not even strange. It's just a really, really nice, well, well-made, well elegant, beautiful, simple album. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all the reasons that one would like repetitive music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's, I, it's some of my favorite drumming that I've ever recorded. To what year was that? 2002. Oh my god! Uh, I'm sorry. 2012. 2012. Because yeah, I moved in 2013. Okay, so like, that's sort of like a 
big demarcation point. It was like we put out that last album and then we were kind of still writing. We had probably another half an album yeah. writ- written of like new songs and um there was kind of the sense that it was just sort of like more of the same. But I feel uh, like by that time weren't you already you were kind of going back to doing like solo Yeah, yeah. I uh, mean, I had a point in 2009 where I made some solo music where I was like, "Oh, this is this is it like i knew when i did it i was like this this is the thing that i'm gonna do for a long time and that's still true so and that was like working with conceptual ideas and um it was started that i've told this story like a million times now but we actually with charles curtis um the one of the groups i was in in austin called the new music co-op um we brought charles in and we did a concert of alvin lucier's music and um you know, I really liked Lucier, but I can't say he was ever like, I can't say he's one of my like early influences hmm. or anything. Like I didn't have like a strong connection to his music until after that concert. And I had always wanted to play the um, triangle solo and I finally did it at that concert. Yeah. And then also during around this time, you know, I had made like a kind of sound collage record and like a no input mixer record. Like I, I knew at the time that I was just trying stuff that I was like, looking around for like what was going to be my thing Mm -hmm. and uh charles told this story where he it was just some sort of like we were on a break just some off the cuff thing where he was like why is uh or people always ask me why is alvin lucier so obsessed with echoes and he just is he just walks into a room and he starts snapping his fingers because he's just like that and for whatever reason that story i I mean this there's a reason i've repeated it so many times Mm -hmm. is that i feel like it was it was a very clear moment where I was like, well, I'm just like trying shit. And it's like, I don't have a connection to the no input mixer. I'm just like, well, maybe I could do that. But hearing that I was like, well, if Alvin is obsessed with echoes, then like, <clears throat> excuse me, like what what's the thing that if I was just left alone that I would be naturally drawn to. And that's how I did this, this music of um, just kind of, fast repetition of a single percussion sound and it it like totally i'm not my music's really different from 10 years ago but i'm still that it's still that music is like the basis of of everything that i've done since then yeah and it was um it was partially oh i remember this is the other thing and i'm sorry if you've heard this before too but while i was playing uh alvin's triangle solo i was like i remembered that i had this vibraphone solo i had written as a senior in college where i play one note for five minutes and um i thought it was cool the reason i did that i was like oh look if you go on a vibraphone consistently the sound's changing all the time Mm -hmm. like and i that was the piece i was just like huh cool and i forgot about it for eight years and then i was playing the triangle piece and i was like wait I wrote a piece exactly like this and um then the the music I'm talking about it was an album that I called Psalms was solos for vibraphone snare drum woodblock Alvin's triangle solo and then this old vibraphone solo mm-hmm. of mine as like a set that I played live like I don't know how many times d- dozens and dozens of times uh-huh. um I mean I played it until I felt like I had played it everywhere that sure. I that I could play it and um I mean, even now, I actually just heard someone else play the snare drum piece for the first time, and it, I'm as fascinated now as I was in 2009 by... By, like, the psychoacoustics of it? By the... It's... Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's... Um, 
it's not just psychoacoustics. It's the, the, you know, it's kind of like Alvin being endlessly fascinated with echoes. It's like, I, I'm endlessly fascinated that I can just hit a snare drum. I can do the absolute most conventional, normal, expected thing with a normal, familiar instrument. And the music that comes out of it is, is totally off of what you would, what you think is going to happen. Um, and I feel that still is like kind of at the core of, of like my being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so it felt like now in hindsight, it really feels like this kind of like perfect crystallized sort of statement of like, here's who I am, uh-huh. you know, knocking on a snare drum. <laughs> and, and the, and, and as you said a second ago, that continues to kind of be like the basis of all the stuff you keep do- that you've been doing since. Yeah. Does that feel like an essential core that will always be there or that? Not necessarily. Now... I think it's something that will like stay with me. I can't, I mean, I don't want to say that I'll sure. be thinking about it forever, but the recent chamber music that I've written is definitely like new for me, but it still feels like it's in the same pool yeah. that, that like it's really different, but I st- still feel like I'm kind of swimming around in more or less the same conceptual area. I'm just getting better and learning more about what that is and the more that happened the more the more i kind of learn about it the more i feel like i can that almost anything could be a piece of music you know i just wrote a piece for my trio meridian and piano where like the basis of a lot of the percussion parts is like shaking maracas you know like in a like in a rock song Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) because i don't know i just had some like goofy idea that about how like often when you hear a shaker or a tambourine part in like a big budget pop song or rock song, that's like the one thing that isn't perfect because usually probably it's played by someone who's not like a professional shaker player. (laughs) Well, yeah, right, right. You know, because people don't think that it's difficult and it's not the egg just, it's not difficult to just grab the egg and do it, but it is difficult to do it mechanically perfectly. And, um, like I'm, I'm obsessed with in the, the Prince song, um, take me with you there's uh-huh. a, there's a finger symbol part and it's perfect which of course it is because it's prince yeah but i really it's so perfect that i don't know if someone played it or if it's a sample and that to me is just like un- i love it it's you like, love not knowing i love that you can't tell yeah um which doesn't totally have anything to do with what i'm talking about but, but it's, yeah, it's, it's related, related to why i was like Actually, a better way to put this is like I made all those knocking pieces 10 years ago based on this idea of like, well, what am I drawn to? And in that same spirit, I was like, well, I'm in the car and I keep noticing all of these tambourine and shaker and maraca parts and big pop songs. And like, uh, if I keep thinking about this, there must be something there. So Uh if I make a piece about it, then maybe I can figure out why that is. And that's, is that, is that sort of like the general tendency with you creatively yeah that that like there's something mysterious and if i make a piece out of it then maybe i can it'll be less mysterious yeah um it was i mean i did that without realizing it you you know like these these pieces that i made i have way way more to say about them now than i did 10 years ago i mean i i've like now in hindsight i realize that it's inserted with all of this sort of personal and conceptual baggage that i just wasn't thinking about at all sure i was just like wow you hit a snare drum and the crazy shit happens like that was my uh that's that's a good enough place to start it's it's a great place to yeah. start but it, it it's only been later looking back after 
lots of things have happened that I'm like, oh. But so when now when you <clears throat> are writing for other instruments, non-percussive instruments like strings, mm -hmm. how does that translate? Uh, it I don't know. It just depends. Like, um, you know, I'm not now currently trying to repeat sounds so that weird things will happen. Mm -hmm. Like, that's not what I'm doing at this moment. But ugh, I don't... I don't know what I'm trying to say. Like, there's this, like, if the spirit of like, well, if I'm drawn to something, why not? You know, like I had a, I had a dream where I made a piece that I was throwing things into a bucket mm -hmm. and I was like, well, I dreamed it. So, uh, you know, there's like Mauricio Coggle said that, uh, his piece match was, it was a dream and really? that, he, that he had the dream three or four times. And then by the last time he had the dream, he saw parts of the score in his dream. And he was like, I have to make this piece. Yeah, and I was like, well, if I had a dream about a drummer throwing things into a bucket across the room, then like, why not just do that? Yeah, uh, and so it's not even like a musical or or like aesthetic choice, really. It's like, um, for whatever reason, this thing is inside of me, and so I'll just do it, and then maybe I'll figure out something about why I had that dream. Or yeah, you know, that's just one example, but it's kind of like. You know, when when I heard this this Lucier Echo story, it really did a lot for me. But it wasn't until recently that I asked the question, like, but like, why echoes? Like, why is it echoes the thing that he's into? And for me, if it's like, you know, one of the things I've been talking about a lot is like, why drums? Why did I pick drums as a nine year old? And mm -hmm. I, I I really never thought about it. Mm -hmm. I, I never seriously asked that question. And I, you know, I think people have all sorts of things like that in their life. You know, like why why did you become a banker? Like, oh, cause I wanted to, but it, but like, why that? You could do anything, pr presumably, if, you know, right. Well, let's just hypothetically, Hypothet let's say yeah, that yeah. like, you know, that when one chooses an instrument at age nine, there must be, it, or it doesn't, they're not must be, maybe I'm like a, uh, more intense th thinker than other people or something, but, mm -hmm. or I don't mean thinker that, that came off, in a way, no, I no, mean no, it I, I, I frequently think back <clears throat> to that decision to start playing the clarinet, and mm -hmm. if I had a time machine, I would go back and like push a violin towards myself. Right, <laughs> because what I you know, when I was five, I wanted to play piano, yeah. and um, my parents didn't get me lessons. And then four years later, I was still obsessed with music, and at that time, I was like drums. Yeah, and, and they supported that. Yeah, yeah, they did because I think I don't know why they didn't at first. Probably because they thought I was too young or something. But um, you know, I still wish I was a great pianist, and I'm barely can play. Do you have a piano at your new place? No, I, I, I wish we did, but I had a piano in my house in Austin for almost the entire time I lived there, and I never touched the thing. So. Really? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I just wh when am I going to learn piano? Like <laughs> piano to me more than any instrument, more than any instrument, anyone could sit down at the piano. Uh, and just have an immediate kind of relationship with some aspect of it. Yeah, and that, that's why I like percussion instruments too, because it's like they're not mysterious in that way. Yeah, like I don't, I don't know how wind instruments work. Oh, it's the worst. Yeah, like I, I can't see it and touch it. Oh, there's so nothing it's like, worse than I've written very little wind music for that reason, except yeah. one new piece that I wrote because. I wanted to make some wind music because I don't understand it. <laughs> I mean, one thing I love about the piano, and especially if you're, you know, a music maker, is, you know, you kind of begin to figure out what sounds you're just naturally drawn to, but I'll mm -hmm. sit at the piano and hold down the mute and sustain pedal and just sort of explore chords. Yep. And it's not even a musical making activity. 
it's it's more of just it's like therapy mm-hmm. you know sitting there and just dealing with you know something that you know the attack the decay yeah and then something else yeah i've that's interesting i hadn't thought about it that way but i've always really liked the piano and um actually it was my i the, this piece i just recorded in a few weeks ago for three percussionists and pianist my friend matt Sargent, great composer he was like oh the piano has always been like really hard for not to play it but he i think what he was saying is that he never knows like how to write for piano that, sure. that he can't like kind of what i'm saying about wind instruments he like can't get inside of it or something yeah and i I've, I've just been always been really drawn to the piano um, yeah and i'm, I'm really speci- there's something about the sound of putting the pedal down and pressing one note once on a piano that is just it, it's amazing mm-hmm. like, and i don't i don't know why i think that's amazing but uh i love it what's the piece that you just recorded um it's um so i have a trio called meridian that's okay. uh me greg stewart and tim feeney and we what does greg stewart play uh all of us are percussionists okay. greg and i were in grad school together actually and we're we almost entirely play improvised music but um greg had this idea to commission me through a grant through his school in south carolina where he teaches um to write a piece for meridian plus something uh-huh. and um ended up doing it for meridian and piano and um we we like i mean we just recorded this piece like right before christmas yeah so it's 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 brand new but um is that gonna be something that you release uh i don't know we, we're still figuring it out i don't th- i don't think that i will release it just because i don't really i'm not i'm like barely running a record label oh really? <laughs> i thought you had a label i i do but like when people ask me to put records out on my label i'm kind of try to like warn them off of it because it's just like i don't know how to promote a label you know <laughs> like, really yeah I, I just i mean it's very nice when people ask but i just feel like there must be something better for them which is not to speak ill of my no, I label i really love the label but it's not something that I'm putting a lot of energy into. But is it for you as you, your own music, your own recordings, is it, what is, what is more daunting? The prospect of releasing it yourself and having to do all the stuff that goes along with it or seeking out someone else to put it out? Oh, I don't have any problem with like the mechanics of releasing something myself. That is easy to me, but I, I just think someone who runs a proper label will take better care of it. Um, You know, I have a, I have a, partially is about like when it came out because it was like i had just moved and i was having this like terrible year personally that i made this dvd of a really serious like huge work that i had made with two other people in austin and it it might as well not exist like it's out there and the audio is on Bandcamp, but it was it was a a film of this massive installation piece that i did with um sean o'neill and clay odom and like it, it, I, I put it out, but like nobody heard it, and and mm-hmm. I don't. That's okay. I'm not complaining about that part of it. It's just that like someone who really is putting more energy than I do into running a label definitely will like do a better job than me. <laughs> At least with getting it to people. Yeah, but I do find it really exciting to you know release music that I don't feel like is like available anywhere else. You know, like. Mm-hmm the last two things I put out are a solo violin and a solo percussion record that I just think they're awesome music. And yeah. as far as I know, they didn't have any other prospects for releasing them. So it's like, yeah, that's really awesome. But yeah. um, I don't know. I just want to like do a good job with anything that I do. And I don't feel like I'm like a, a master label boss, you know? <laughs> no, 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 no. 
it, it's frustrating and it's confusing right now. Yeah. I mean, I, I've for the last Jesus Christ seven years, I've released all my own stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, occasionally <clears throat> a small thing here and there on another label, but right. it's been and and I'm frequently frustrated by mm-hmm. by you know. Well, and I only do CDs too, which is a whole stupid thing about people not being into those, and it's just like whatever. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, I well, I don't want to get into the whole CD vinyl no, thing, no, no, but no, also no, no. like the music that I make doesn't fit on a record, and I hate tapes, so it's like CDs. You know, if I want to make an hour of music, mm-hmm. it has to be on a CD or just online, which I don't not comfortable with. That doesn't feel as satisfying yeah i want to think i personally want a thing i can hold and i also just think there's this this impression still left over from you know record people that if you don't make something physical then it's like there's this sub unconscious vibe of like well they couldn't even bother to like you know they just threw it up on you know it's like no effort to put something right in camp which frequently is a solid assessment because there is a lot of that yeah but it, but it it's not like a given, you know. If yeah. if uh, someone releases something digital only, it's like that doesn't like mean that that it's sort of lesser. But I feel like there's that vibe. Yeah, um, I'm 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 still stuck with that. Yeah. And, so, I'm yeah. like I I do the label and I like it, but I'm I'm doing it very infrequently. It's like if something comes to me or with 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 Prune Bishow's album I just really I heard the Pinecross double LP and I was like I want to know these people mm-hmm. and um I saw a video of her playing live and I was like this is unreal and so you know I put that out <laughs> yeah so you were saying earlier that you just moved uh to a new place where mm-hmm. you're kind of rebuilding your your workspace your studio Are, is that for me that's a constant that's an exciting prospect because I think about how that might influence like my own like workflow and sense of work. What's it been like for you to to reset up a workspace? Well, I only moved two weeks ago, so I haven't really done any work. <laughs> I mean, most of I really probably only record at home, maybe a couple times a year, mm-hmm. and I really love recording. But most of the pieces that I've been needing to record in the last year or two have not been solo me pieces, and so I um, really what I need at home is like an office more than I need. Um, like a nice recording studio space. Sure. But I do have enough room now that I can, it used to be in, in our old house. Like if I set up my vibraphone in my studio room, it was like, you couldn't move, you, you know, it was <laughs> yeah. like, you're literally on top of the thing. Yeah. And so I, I have a nicer space now in, and also a very large garage. Should I ever want to record something bigger at home? But, but even just like the office space, like of oh, what you amazing. surround yourself with. Yeah. Is... Yeah. Um, and I'm I'm working at home a lot more than I used to now, and so it's it's very it's really awesome. I'll tell you this much: if someone published like a very expensive coffee table portrait book of composer workspaces, oh, I, I would buy it absolutely, no <laughs> matter the price, instantly. Yeah, I was just on tour with um, uh, uh, Jessica Slichter in, in Europe, and we had a conversation about. I was talking about the desk that I had bought a couple years ago and she was like i love studio pictures (laughs) this desk that i have right here i got this when i was 22 i was walking on down ninth avenue and there was this coffee shop that was going out of business and they were just selling everything i got this for 50 bucks and carried it (laughs) from ninth like chelsea to the lower east side Mm -hmm. um and i've used it ever since my wife she's always like i hate that desk get rid of it oh it looks nice she's like we'll get you something smaller more like feasible all that stuff and like I don't think I'll ever be able to get rid of this. Yeah. No, it looks great. 
yeah, you it's, know, it stick is, stick with what with 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 what works. I'm really like just attached <laughs> to it, you know. I yeah. mean, like a great friend of mine, who's one of the great composers of the last sixty years. When you go to his place, his little workspace, mm-hmm. he's using the same wooden uh, school desk that he's had since like sixth grade. Right. Yeah, my my previous desk was a, a table bought at a furniture store that was not wide enough to even like hold the computer and monitors. So I was sitting, you know, six inches away from these massive studio monitors for like <laughs> several years. <laughs> and I got this, it's just a long U-shaped wood desk with nothing, no drawers or anything. It's just a flat surface and it's great. I love it. I mean, no matter how hard I try or just like to conceptualize of a really clean sort of modern workspace, like I, I need things, piles of shit around me mm-hmm. covered in dust. Yeah, I'm trying to eliminate the piles of shit in yeah. the new in the new place. Well, what are you getting rid of? Oh, I'm just being more, I'm just have more space to put things away. Okay. Like uh it, it, you know, my vibraphone doesn't have to be folded up in a jammed into a closet anymore. Yeah. So I don't play at home that much, but if I want to, I can just roll it out. I don't have to go through the process of, you know, putting it together and it's just ni- everything is just nicer, you know. But that's, yeah. you know, that's why we moved. <laughs> yeah. And and what do you have going on uh, currently? You said you have a rehearsal today. Oh yeah, I'm ri- I'm writing actually the same the piece that I was just talking about for percussion and piano. I decided to make into a series because <clears throat> right around the same time I got asked to make a piece for flute and nine voices. Whoa! And I was like, oh, okay, well, I can do. Uh, my goal, I just, I just had this idea like a week ago, is that I can do a third one for something and a group of something which I think it'll be strings because there's no string instruments in the first two. So, I don't know, like bass and five violins or something like that. Yeah. And then maybe play all three of them at the same time one day. But um, I'm meeting with the flautist tomorrow to just go over the part that I hastily emailed yesterday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's for a concert at the kitchen in early March. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's You're going to do like a full evening of music? And it's just a piece. She actually asked me if... Uh, if the early version could only be 15 minutes long because there's not room on the program for an hour of music Okay. because the Meridian piano piece is an hour long. And so while I was in South Carolina recording this first piece, I was like, oh, I could do three of these and they're all an hour and you play them all at the same time. And it would be, it would still be like listening to a piece of music, but it might have more of a kind of like happening feel mm-hmm. than a concert piece. Maybe. I don't, I don't really know. I mean, I haven't even, written the third one but mm-hmm. um i just I, as i was saying earlier i just want to i keep i'm interested in large long things and so the idea of having something that takes up enough sort of musical and like uh acoustic space to take up a very large space sounds really cool to me yeah um, so yeah that that to, to talk to you and i realized i could come down and do this and meet with the flautist at the same time gonna knock uh, a couple things out yeah yeah so, but the kitchen's great have you done something there before no i saw i saw a dance piece there yeah oh god i don't remember right recently um that was part of the it was um uh jeremy baptiste toussaint that i actually didn't realize until after the show that i knew him really <laughs> but it was a dance performance that was part of a julius eastman thing that they were doing yeah there. and i can't I was in town for one of my own shows, and I cannot remember what it was, but it was early early to mid-2018. Okay. And, but that was my first time in the kitchen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's if you like to fill spaces yeah, with sound, great. that's a good one. 
I mean, I think flute and nine voices will be cool. It's going to sound insane. Yeah, it'd be great. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, I appreciate you coming over and talking, Sarah. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Thanks a lot.